Welcome to the Evolved Nest. We talk about child development, human flourishing, morality, and society. You're welcome to follow us at www.evolvednest.org. I'm Mary Tarsha. Thank you for joining us. And today I have Dr. Darsha Narvaez here with us to talk about play. What is play and why is it important? Ah, play. Play is the joy of childhood. It's what enlivens us, grows our brains and bodies, and connects us to others. So I'm talking about free play, free social play, where children meet another child, usually, could be an adult also, and find a connection there of being silly together, of being spontaneous together, of running and chasing and climbing and building and unbuilding and having just joy in the moment. So play is part of our heritage as social mammals. Social mammals, we are, and they've been around for 30 million years. We're part of that line. And social mammals play in childhood, throughout childhood. And our childhood is a long one. It goes till probably maybe age 25. <laughs> but but in, in our ancestral context, which we always refer to in this Evolved Nest conversation, are that, that small band hunter gatherers? They play all the time as adults. So they have they banter and they're silly and they sing and they play with the children and they dance and make up songs, just, yeah, little songs. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just a, a enjoyment of life. That's what play is about, in a social way, back and forth. Hmm. So it's not soccer practice or a music lesson or something like that. Well, that is a, can be a form of play, but it's not the kind we're talking about because free play, social free play, actually builds the brain in various specific ways. It helps you learn to stop and start your action, to be attentive to your play partner. Because if your partner feels like you're too aggressive or uh, you hurt them, they're going to stop playing. Hmm. And so you have to learn to control your responses in a way that keeps them playing with you. So you learn to control aggression, not be too assertive, not be too uh, commanding, but you're responding to the others because it's a back and forth. In the moment, you're switching off who's leading and who's following and who's creating and who's you know, uh, figuring out new ways to be together. So it's an ongoing process, and that builds the executive functions, we call it, in the brain, the prefrontal cortex, which grows throughout life and especially by age 30. Uh, but that's really important for getting along with others, to be able to think of and know in your body consequences of your actions. That's how you, you learn that from playing. You don't learn that from reading a book. Hmm. So it can be hard, I mean, as adults to recognize when children are playing or when they're not playing, because sometimes it's interpreted as aggression rather than rough and tumble play or imagination, right? Yes, you're very right. Here we have, there's evidence that adults who don't, haven't played enough themselves can't perceive what play is, this kind of rough and tumble, uh, almost looks like they, they interpret it as aggression, as you say. And there's a good movie that, that you can watch the segments of, and there's one on this zero tolerance policy for whatever aggressive things in school. It's called The War on Kids. 
and they show that adults are so imperceptive now of play that they will suspend a child for like using their holding up a chicken finger chicken mcnugget or something in the school lunch period and aiming it at another child and you know as a playful gun thing and they oh no and they suspend the Mm. child for being violent Mm. um but kids have to learn how to be together and what looks like violence might just be their attempt to find the boundary with the other person and they need to figure that out especially at age two two two-ish the so-called temper tantrum period, which is only apparently a problem in in the United States and other similar cultures, not in the world. Um, But that's where the child is trying to figure out, oh, I can do stuff now. You know, I can lift this stick and run at somebody. Hmm. And they have no sense yet. They haven't developed the cognitive capacities of perspective taking, of realizing what the effect on the other is in that time period. And so you can, if you just look at videos of one-and-a-half, two-and-a-half-year-olds, they look pretty violent. <laughs> uh, and you think, oh, that's human nature. No, 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 no. They're still developing. They're not a hu- full human being yet. I mean, not really until age 35, I think Eric Erickson was right. <laughs> so be patient. <laughs> Things take time to grow, just like you plant your tomato seed. You don't expect the tomato tomorrow. <laughs> you know, you have to wait for it. So you have to wait for humans to develop well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was just reading about play uh, from Jakob Ponsep, you know, and who a study, an affective neuroscientist, studied play for many decades. When he was writing that one book, he had been studying for three decades, but he went on to continue for another decade almost after that. And I think it was interesting because right from the beginning, he was showing pictures of different mammals and how they play. I mean, just so cute, these little tiger cubs and how they're, you know, rough and tumble play. And um, he had some other really cute little puppies in there and things like this. And he talks about just the act of, you know, pinning one uh, child down versus the other child and how that's fun and how what's happening in that experience. And, and I was thinking, yeah, this could be interpreted as aggressive, right? If you see this in, in little kids. So I thought that was so, you know, important to see how it's not just human, but it's mammalian. It's across all of these different species we see. And it's helpful to see these images and and other species, how we can look at it and say, isn't that cute? (laughs) So we need that same perspective to be able to see that within our own children. Yeah. And you can tell if it's real genuine play by the sparkle in the eye and the enjoyment of the children. Now, and if you miss that, then you're, you know, maybe they are going a little bit too far. But you really have to stand back as much as possible and let them figure it out and not interfere because once you start interfering, they will need you to interfere for the rest of their lives because they will have lost confidence in their own ability to figure things out and they will, you know, just step back from being who they are. So you have to help them. And sometimes you shape the, in small band hunter-gatherer communities, when a a two-year-old is running at somebody with a stick, they, the, the community, the people around will just, you know, make a game out of it and laugh mm. and make it silly and not take it as an aggressive mood, but more as a playful mood. And this child's still learning how to be human and it's okay. And we're going to support them and uh, keep them from doing any real harm, but, uh, you know, not punish them, not say no, not, you know, undermine their spirit of self-confidence. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you're talking about 
adults really being there as regulators and helping the kids um, interpret what they're doing, their own behaviors, but then also modulating that emotional response. So if they do something, rather than interpreting it as aggression, turning it into a game of play and uh, being that, um, that, that buffer there of, of behavior. Yeah, and it's important not to interfere as much as possible to stand back. The child knows how to grow well. It's built in to the child's genetic inheritance and all the other things. As long as they're supported all along the way, they're going to grow well. It's when things get, uh, when they get punished or when they get thwarted in their interests that they start to then develop in directions that are less than optimal. So what are the positive outcomes of play then? I mean, you started to talk about it a little bit in terms of executive function, but isn't there uh, some more evidence about self-regulation too, all p- part of that? And what does that mean? What is self-regulation? And Well, you could probably talk about that, <laughs> couldn't you? <laughs> self-regulation, all sorts of systems, right, are important for self-regulation. Uh, and we can talk about it from a physiological level and that would be heart rate and breathing, respiration, the vagal tone, which you are studying. And um, that's physiological. That's affected by play and that embeddedness in the family being responded to, mutually responsive relationships where you are always there with the child emotionally and physically. But then there's emotion regulation, which is also built from endocrinological systems like the oxytocin system and all those emotion systems that are, we're born with for survival. For example, fear, <clears throat> panic, anxiety. Uh, well, not rage. separation, anxiety, and rage, yes. Those kinds of systems, when you have a responsive, supportive nest, get toned down. They don't get... Um, tuned up to be highly activated, whereas if you don't have the nest, they are, then you easily go into rage or or fear because you've been left to cry it out or whatever, left alone a lot, and not in that social embeddedness, which is part of our heritage, our need, our basic need. Um, And so there's physiological regulation, emotion regulation, there's social regulation, how you get along with others, and there's so many layers and layers of how to start conversations, stop conversations that babies learn before they can talk, for example. And then there's behavior regulation, you know, being able to stop and start your own behavior and pay attention to your effect on the world, all that stuff. And it's all play is part of the way you learn all that kind of self-regulation. So when children are playing, they're really doing so much. (laughs) They're growing and expanding and, and learning and developing really critical systems And when we take play away, we're really stifling that. And I think one of the neat things, um, outcomes of play, that I think is we're we're having a hard time because play is decreasing, right, within schools and kindergartens, unfortunately, within the United States, and um, is that dynamic uh, flexibility that play provides within relationship, the relational flexibility. And so um, it's teaching and enabling Uh, young children, how to change on a dime, right? In the moment. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's a very good point. And so if if the child then only uh, plays with screens, like an iPad or iPhone or um, video games, if they only play with screens, they're not getting the practice of the social dynamic uh, interactions. The screen will react to them, 
but not in a way that's mutually responsive, not in a way that they have to actually pay attention to the signals of the eyes, of the mouth, of the face of the other person or their body, their gestures, their body language. That's, I mean, it's very holistic when you are face-to-face with someone. There's a lot of um, multi-sensory processing, uh, parallel processing that you have to do, whereas with a, it's very flat, screen-oriented, is quite different. And that reminds me of this Edmund Morris mentioned Mm -hmm. in an interview that he was concerned that his university students were reacting to his lectures as if they were watching a screen, that they've gotten so two-dimensional in their response to the world that they were not really thinking and when they went on a field trip, they didn't really see the beauty of the natural uh, lights in the harbor. They instead really tuned into a photograph, a big mm. photograph of those lights in the harbor that they could see themselves if they turned around. But no, they paid attention and took pictures of the image of Whoa. the real world. And so the concern then for moving away from face-to-face kind of interactions and the, wow, the enormous amounts of socio-social and emotional intelligence you develop from that, then you're moving to a screen in the flat hmm. kind of two-dimensional way of, of being. I mean, that's true for books, too. Books are two-dimensional. And that's just not enough to grow a human being. Hmm. Yeah, it's not enough to grow a human being. It's not enough to grow the social brain. And then you age, but you're not necessarily developed, right? There's a difference. (laughs) And you don't think very well then because you don't have the embodied, the sense of embodiment, meaning that your body knows how to be with another person face to face. And you know, you know, the distance of, of talking to them and how to get them to pay attention to you and how to be kind in that body to bodiness mm-hmm. and instead you have this very flat notion of what it means to be a human being and you go into your intellect you just think and you think your thinking is enough hmm. and that's always been pointed out in the world religions as a dangerous place to hang out <laughs> yes very good point what about playing in nature i think we'll save that for the next program okay and just within the yeah. last few minutes that we have yeah. What about if you didn't have play as an adult? For our adult listeners, uh, maybe that was something that they didn't receive or wasn't uh, provided for them. And so is there anything that you can do now as an adult to play? Does it help you as an adult or maybe not? Yeah, great question. Well, there are, uh, Dan Siegel writes about how he has adults coming in after they have an empty nest, all their children have left. And they come in, and the the wife is ready for action and travel and opening up to the world, typically around, I don't know, 40s, 50s. And the the husband isn't. And he and the husband just wants to sort of go into his man cave and, and <laughs> pr- be, you know, uh, kind of isolated. And he attributes this to right hemisphere development issues that the and, – and we can link this to all sorts of research by Alan Shore – uh, showing that early experience matters for that right hemisphere development and that boys actually need more nurture, more of the nest to develop that right hemisphere properly. Mm. So Dan Siegel says, <clears throat> well, they come in and, and they have sort of a right hemisphere underdevelopment. What do you do? 
So he advises them to go play, hmm. to do things that require them to be in the moment, face-to-face, like folk dancing or perhaps our social art experiences or something that we're... And then the best I always, always suggest is play with preschool kids. They are so spontaneous and they're ready to play chase and, and react to you and respond to you and do all sorts of wonderful uh, kinds of games. So that's the place to restore and renew and revamp your right hemisphere, which is really important for all of us to be fully human. We need our whole brain to be working properly. And we can heal ourselves later to some degree. Yeah, that's really interesting. As you were talking, I was thinking just the benefit of grandparents having grandchildren, that they're able to uh, engage with them and, and play with them, and how beneficial that is for the children, but then also for the grandparents. And so the importance of having many generations together and interacting right there within your own family. You can yes. harness that therapeutic potential. That's great. And one other thing, too, since... Uh, we are in June when we're making this recording. Uh, Father's Day is coming up. And one of the places people often ask, well, if the mom's breastfeeding, what's the dad doing about the nest? And one of the most important things that dad does, especially as the child grows older than babyhood, is to play, play, play with that child and bond with that child and help the child learn how to interact with others to stop and start action, to be responsive, to be uh, flexible in in the moment. Hmm. That's wonderful. Well, well, thank you so much for helping us understand what unstructured, unstructured free play is and how we can implement it in our lives. Yes. I had just a couple suggestions. First, uh, before we end, there are a couple books. If you are a parent who wants to learn how to play and Use play to help your family thrive. There are several books uh, that I recommend. One for if you have a preschooler or a baby right now is called The Art of Rough Housing. And it gives you all sorts of moves and things. If you didn't have rough housing as a young child, you may not know them. So this illustrates what you can do with your young child and helps their brain develop well. Another one is, uh, is actually a more holistic uh, orientation to parenting called Playful Parenting. And this is uh, um, by Lawrence Cohen, who talks about how playful parenting nurtures close connections with your child. It helps you solve behavior problems and encourages confidence. So it's really building into your family life playful parenting. And one more, uh, and that's called Attachment Play. And this, too, is oriented to solving behavior problems with play, laughter, and connection. And this is by Aletha Solter. So I would encourage you, if you are kind of doubtful or don't have much experience with play, to grab one of these books and start to read and get your mind around it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for those suggestions and ways that we can learn more about helping the next generation and also helping heal ourselves as well. Thank you for joining us and we look forward to being with you next time on the Evolved Nest.